Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. It's all right if you love me. It's all right if you don't. I'm not afraid of you running away. Take it away, guy. That would be the great Tom Petty from Gainesville, Florida. That's Danny Moses in the center stage. He's singing that song because, Danny, as you've mentioned, first of all, I believe right now as we enter week 1-5 of the NFL, the league where they play for pay, you are now 19-3. and But on the weeks that you lose, which is few, obviously, when you're 19-3, and the market does some mysterious things. So you're singing a little petty breakdown, well done by you. But as you approach the center stage, Danny, can you sort of give us a rundown of what the F is going on? <laughs> November 7th, first loss, Cincinnati at home against Cleveland. Market crushed the following week, 2 or 3%. Next loss after that, Thanksgiving Day, runs my record to 16-2. and two. I decided to take Dallas over the Raiders. You saw what happened on Friday and then the following, I think, Monday in the markets. Well... The 10 standard deviation loss, which occurred on Sunday with the Bills making it to overtime and then losing by six, so not covering the spread. We saw what happened on Monday and Tuesday. Maybe Jay Powell also had the Bills. I'm not quite sure, but that's what it is. So now everyone's rooting for me to win, and they root, that means they root against Dan because Dan normally takes the other side of me. So we'll see what happens this week, but I'm hopeful to give everybody a, kind of a winning Christmas pick. I think Jay Powell has the runs, quite frankly, and it's interesting, Dan, Nathan, before we really get into it, you want to sort of... 19 and three is pretty epic. I mean, at a certain point, just I would just it's a math thing. You got to have a three and a week, I would think, Dan. Yeah, I'm going to take the opposite of everything that he does. But, you know, it's, well, we're sticking on this theme of breakdown. <laughs> you know, Bruce Springsteen guy, you mentioned the name of this song earlier in the week. It trapped. Seems like I'm caught up in your trap again. This is, seems like Jay Powell is really trapped. Right. And if you think about the volatility that we've seen in the market just over the last two days, we're recording this right now into the close on Thursday. Does any of this price action, guys, in the last 24 hours, does any of it make any sense to you? On Tuesday evening, well, first of all, before we even get into that, obviously, folks, you are listening to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by the brilliant Danny Moses in so many different ways and the equally brilliant Dan Nathan. This week, we're looking at the Fed taper timeline. Signs of a market top, and there are many, and buy now, pay later stocks, which, by the way... Danny Moses was all over months ago. We're going to go off the tape with Scott Wapner, host of CNBC's Halftime Report. But to answer your question, Dan Nathan, on Tuesday night on CNBC's Fast Money, Melissa Lee came to me. She says, what do you think is going to happen? And my answer to her was, look, it's impossible for the Fed to be more hawkish than they've been. The market probably has themselves a bit off sides. It wouldn't surprise me on the back of uh, Wednesday's announcements to see the market sort of rally. Now, with that said, never in my wildest dreams that I think we'd have the day we had on Wednesday. But as we sit here on Thursday afternoon, giving the entire thing back. So that's my explanation to you, Dan Nathan. Yeah, but it feels a lot nastier today to the downside than the upside felt good yesterday, you know, and it just felt like a really a knee-jerk reaction. And to your point, Guy, I mean, listen, it's hard to kind of game these things. I saw Carl Quintanilla tweeted something out. 
every single Fed day in 2021, the stock market closed up, which I think is really interesting. I'd love to see what happened the next day here. But I just couldn't come up with a single explanation why anything about increasing the pace of the taper and pulling forward rate hikes was going to be bullish for stocks. Danny, can you help me with this? I can help you a little bit. So I wrote that thing on Twitter ahead. I made the assumption, obviously, that they would go to kind of three, right? The market was already pricing in three rate hikes. They knew the taper was going to accelerate. He said as much in front of Congress. We also knew that he would have to acknowledge Omicron, which he did. He says health impacts and things like that. So you got kind of everything you wanted. I guess it was a relief rally because, I mean, he wasn't going to hike then. But here's what's interesting. He gave you the definition. He, he gave you a little picture of stagflation. What did he do? He took up, not that I believe or think they're getting any of the numbers right. He took his inflation expectations up, which is backwards looking in 2021, from 4.2 to 5.3. Well, we knew it was going up because they were behind the curve. He took his growth assumptions down from 5.9 to 5.5, which is interesting. In 2022, his inflation expectations are 2.6% and the growth is four. And in 2023, the growth is 2.2 down from 2.5. Here's what's interesting. Go to the Fed Fund Futures, just being a geek for a second. Interestingly enough, and Dan, this has been your fear all along. People are assuming that if they go three times, the economy is going to slow a lot. What is it telling us? If you go back and look at just one day ago on the on CME Fed Fund Futures and last week on CME, it was a greater chance of four, five, six hikes over the next year. I don't think anyone believed they would happen, but that's what it was, it was monitoring. And now it's gone pretty much. Those are being pulled in. So I think the market is telling us right now, Fed's going to go, they're going to finish the taper no matter what. Whether they start raising rates is a different story. But I think we're facing an expensive market rolling into 22, a non-dovish have your back Fed, although they could switch at any point. And like I said before, the fear that growth is going too slow, which means the market's overvalued. So a lot was going on yesterday. And I was going to say before today, like I thought the market, didn't think the market would do this today, but I was going to tell people, use the next few weeks to like clean up your portfolio. And I keep hearing about people making tax decisions. Don't let taxes be the driver of selling securities because guess what? A 25% down move you just voided any reasoning for the taxes. So that's always not a great reason for behavior in the market. So I was going to pitch those two. You know, Dan, Nathan, some of the things that you've talked about is the beneath the surface, under the hood, as it were, the market's been showing all kinds of warning signs. And now finally, maybe the broader market is catching up. But to Danny's point, I mean, some of these stocks are down anywhere literally from 35 to 70%. And we're not talking about biotech stocks or penny stocks. We're talking about some major major corporations that have really been under pressure. The broader market hasn't really manifested that sell-off, but now it's starting to. What are your thoughts on that, Dan Nathan? Well, our good friend Carter Braxton Worth had a note on Worth Charting yesterday that he tweeted. Check it out. He said the Russell 3000 at yesterday when he posted it was only down 3.5% from its 52-week highs. But you got to hear some of the numbers, okay? 2288, 76% of those stocks were down more than 10% from its highs, okay? 1884, 63% were down 15%. I'm just going to accelerate this. 1,068 were down more than 30%. 913 were down more than 35%. 793, that's 26 and a half, were down more than 40%. And 559 stocks in the Russell 3000 were down about 18.5% from its highs or about 50%. I mean, that is just astounding. And so, you know, listen, we don't, we're not your fancy hedge fund manager. We're not your mutual fund portfolio manager. We're not your broker or anything like that. Why do we talk about this stuff? Because we're charged at looking at 
stocks, at sectors, at broad markets. So you guys might think that we've been just kind of squawking about all this crap for months. But listen, the stock market, for all intents and purposes, has crashed other than, what, 10 or 15 names that has kept it levitating. And when you look at the price action that we're seeing right now, and I get it, Apple went up 20% in a straight line in two months. But to see that stock off of a nearly $3 trillion market cap today for no reason, down four and a quarter percent, you better take notice. That's what I'm saying. I agree with that. And by the way, Amazon hasn't traded particularly well since their earnings release. Obviously, we're starting to give it up in Tesla. And one thing I've said for a while, Danny Moses, and kudos to one of the guys who was in that movie with you. Wasn't Michael Burry in that movie with you, the big, the big short? See, I didn't do it that time, Danny Moses. He was. Well, I mentioned that because it was over the summer over the summer when he came out with some of his notes on the ARK ETF and Tesla. And I got to tell you something, he would be the first person to say he's typically very early. But in terms of that, his timing could not have been better, Danny Moses. Yeah. What's the symbol on that Tesla again? Is it is it TSLA? You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what it is. Listen, I've said all along, it is the meme stock. I will know that the market's going to have its big downdraft when that thing starts to crack. And it is starting to crack. It could, it could save itself and recover. But to Dan's point, I mean, the, the top 10 stocks have been accounting for the majority, obviously, the gains. And if those things start falling, look out because you're not buying the other. The other names really aren't quality. There's no fundamental reason to start scooping up some of these other kind of meme names, right? But the big guys, some of them have fundamental reasons to buy at certain levels, but they're not here. So if the momentum leaves the big, big boys, we're really in trouble here. So Tesla's got its own issues. Tesla hasn't traded on fundamentals for a very long time. It, it trades on you know future belief on what they can be, the technology company, all things to everybody, autonomous driving, all these things. And you know what's interesting about stocks is once they start to shake out and go down, it makes everybody take a sobering look at what they own. And when you really piece names like Tesla out, you're like, why do I own this again? Oh, Elon Musk is a genius. Oh, okay. That's not enough, whether you think he's a genius or not. That's not enough. So I think we're starting to get down to this really, again, this is 2000. This is this is 2000 again, Dan. It really feels the same. Yeah, but you know, Danny, I think what's interesting about what you just said, it was like the OG meme stock, especially when it was sub $100 billion market cap, right? Do you remember all the comparisons? It's got a bigger market cap than Ford, and then it had a bigger market cap than Ford and GM combined. When you get to a trillion dollars, and we've only seen, what, seven stocks globally that have ever done that, I just think the rules change. And, and I'll say this, fundamentals are starting to matter a little bit. I'm seeing investors shooting first, asking questions later. Two weeks ago, I think we talked about it on the pod when Salesforce.com had just come off an all-time high. They reported earnings, something in the guidance people didn't like. It was down 10% the next day. It's down, I think, about 17 or so percent from that all-time high made last month. Today, Adobe down 10%. Good quarter, bad guide. That stock's down 17%. So when you start seeing that sort of price action where a month or two ago, people didn't worry about a stock trading at 20 times sales, 20 times sales with the $275 billion market cap. And now they start to, this is the sort of price action that in the sort of sentiment in the market that has the potential to really steamroll. Adobe is a $260 billion company. That's not insignificant. This was a $700 stock in the middle of November. To Dan's point, it is now trading in the mid 560s. That is an extraordinary move for a company of that size. And we're mentioning it again, not because it's some penny stock or biotech stock. This is a major corporation that has fallen victim to exactly that. When valuations matter and when people actually start looking at fundamentals, this is what happened. And again, the fact that the S&P 500 has not figured that out yet, well, 
I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think I know. I think it's a really bad thing, but we'll let the market decide, Danny Moses. Listen, I don't know anything about this stuff, but there's another kind of virus that's out there also that could be having an impact a little bit on some of these tech names. And I'm not even going to pretend to understand it, but it's a log4j. And what it is, it's, I guess it's a- Whoa, 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 whoa. It's a what? A log4j. A critical flaw in a widely used software has cybersecurity's experts raising alarms. And this is from Jen Easterly, the head of Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security, the CISA, called it, quote, one of the most serious flaws I've seen in my career, a growing set of hackers are actively attempting to exploit the vulnerability and there's no patch for it. And so, again, I don't know what, what is, what's going to happen with this thing, but throw that into the mix. And I just think that's a whole nother element, certainly in certain tech names for sure. So, yeah, well, that's a virus, honestly, that, you know, the markets don't really take too much notice to. But I think the markets are also weighing this Omicron. I, listen, a couple of weeks ago, I would have been fading it like crazy. But I'm telling you, I was out with some people last night having drinks and they were going to get ready to go to some Christmas parties that got canceled, literally got canceled an hour, an hour and a half before. So that's sweeping kind of New York City. They're having breakouts in different restaurants. Schools are closing. There's that sort of sentiment. I thought we were kind of behind. I think that's probably weighing a little bit. And especially when you go back to, you know, the epicenter of this pandemic was really New York City. It's also the financial capital of the world, that sort of thing. I think in the beginning, back in 2020, I think that sort of psychology really worked its way through the institutional investor set. And maybe that's doing it again this time. And Dan, it's a great point. And I think we can tie a bow on kind of the Fed here with this. Everyone knows it's not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. The Fed can't do anything right now. Even if you said, oh, the economy is slowing, what are they going to do? They're going to exacerbate supply chain issues, but they'll exacerbate inflation. That's the problem. And I think that's part of the reason that the market's down is not only does the Fed tapering and quote, maybe not have your back, what does having your back even mean at this point? So I think that's what is being a little bit, you know, drawn into the market as well. What's interesting, real quick, Dan, Nathan, you know, we saw some retail sales numbers out this week that were disastrous. Now, I mentioned that only because here's my question to Dan, Nathan, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, and because I, I think I know what you're going to say, but did Jay Powell, everybody says nobody rings the bell at the top or the bottom, and I get it, and it's a fun thing to say, but did he ring the bell when he basically came out and said, we're going to retire the term transitory? Because I got to tell you something, ever since then, some of these numbers, my sense is, were on the other side of something, and maybe they, in fact, did ring the bell, and maybe he did get squeezed in terms of what inflation was doing. Guy, 100%. When I tell you this, I mean, literally, he said uncle at the exact top, in my opinion, and I think we're going to look back and we're like, oh my goodness, that was the policy mistake. So Guy, on the consumer front, there was a, a tweet from David Rosenberg, former guest of On the Tape. Hopefully, Rosie will come back here. This was the other day. This was yesterday. The surprising negative 0.1 print on the core control retail sales shows what happens when over 60% of holiday shopping took place earlier than normal this year, clouds over the consumer now for the next few months because pent-up demand has already been facilitated. And I think that's kind of what you're getting to, Guy, a little bit, is there was, there was heavy discounting and it came really early and there were worries about supply chains, right? And people went out and spent. And I'm actually really worried. And you obviously have some very strong thoughts on the U.S. consumer. I'd love to hear what you think, because once we get through this holiday period, if we continue to have a lot of uncertainty, we know that we have what the kids are calling the stimmy roll-off or something like that. There's no more COVID stimulus left in 2022. 
two, what does it mean for the consumer guy? Well, I mean, look, you know my view. I've said for years on CNBC's Fast Money, I've learned over the years that you never bet against the U.S. consumers want to spend. It doesn't mean they are in position to spend. I hear about balance sheets and it never looked better and all that stuff. I get it. I'm not certain that's the case, but we will see. I also do believe that so much has been pulled forward. But Danny Moses, I also think this. When prices go up, they become very sticky. Prices go up, they don't come down nearly as fast. And it's something that Jay Powell said as well. And again, I think if you listen to Fast Money, if you listen to this podcast, you know, I am not a fan. But he said something that I've been saying now literally for years. They have inflation in all the wrong places, and there's zero they can do about it. And I think they're figuring that now, which is the reason why they're going forth with doubling the taper and talking about rate heights and those things because quite frankly they have all the air cover they need to sort of um back away from that position like i said a few minutes ago he took pal took their growth assumptions down in 2021 right <laughs> he's taking his numbers growth down and tapering quicker that sends a wrong signal he's been wrong for the last year he's wrong i don't expect him to get any of this stuff right either i don't know how it's going to pan out but I can tell you, there's going to be a lot of volatility in 2022. You have to know what he's thinking, whether you think he's right or wrong. I just leave it at that. And one has to wonder, just in terms of, you know, there are, again, we talked about ringing the bell and signs of tops. Well, here's a few. Elon Musk, as we know, big fan of Danny Moses, named Times 2021 Person of the Year. Apple came literally within, I think, eight cents, which is ridiculous, of becoming a $3 trillion market cap company this week. Oh, by the way, Again, not to cast aspersions, Kathy Wood, but that ARK ETF is now flirting with $90. And if Tesla trades below 900 which I happen to think that it will, one has to wonder how low that's going to get, Dan Nathan. So the signs are there. And again, the S&P 500 is still within earshot of an all-time high, but everything else is giving up, including, by the way, the IWM that you had a great call in, Dan Nathan, as did Carter Braxton Worth. It's funny, Guy, you mentioned Elon Musk being made the person of the year, and I think there's a lot of really good arguments for that. I mean, he has transcended auto manufacturing. He's transcended CEO. You know, he had a company that's worth over a trillion dollars at its highs that was worth $70 billion, I think, 18 months ago. He's sending rockets up to the space station. He wants to go to Mars. I mean, that makes perfect sense. The only thing I'll tell you is if you guys recall in 1999 when Jeff Bezos, the uh, CEO, founder of Amazon, was anointed Times Person of the Year. The stock spent the next couple of years losing close to 90% of its value. I'm not saying that's going to happen with Tesla. So it says a little bit about the zeitgeist that, you know, this moment that we're in where it seems that markets are sport, markets are entertainment, you know, it's just pop culture, that sort of thing. And that's probably not a great thing when you're thinking about it from, I don't know, a valuation standpoint. There's so much enthusiasm about these people, about these stories. Sometimes people can't see the forest for the trees. So as I think you probably know, one of my favorite movies, one of the most quotable movies of all time is obviously the great Wall Street. And one of the characters in that movie was Lou Mannheim, Danny Moses. And why, Danny Moses, am I mentioning Lou Mannheim quickly? Just give me a quick answer because I have more to go here. But I like you. And then there's man stares in the abyss. There's nothing staring back. Well, Carvana sometimes trades on what they call the Mannheim index, right? But I don't think that's really what's driving necessarily the stock here. But we have talked about Carvana in the past to be end up being one of the poster children 
of this market. They claim that they exist by buying and selling used cars, but anyone that's gotten a bid from Carvana on a car knows it's always been a little bit higher than you would have thought. And yes, used cars in general have been in high demand because as we know, chip shortages to get new cars have been tough. So there is an economic reason for the benefit, but they don't make their money really on buying and selling cars. And they have a huge amount of debt to, to finance. They finance cars. That's how they make their money. So they really are a financing company. And when I did a rot months ago, when I don't know how many weeks ago it was, about one of the people associated with Carvana, who is Ernie Garcia II, who started a company called Ugly Duckling in the 90s, which was one of Steve Eisman's famous zero calls. It was a subprime auto finance company, was also involved in the SNL crisis. You know, he was convicted of doing stuff bad there. Not a good guy. Well, he runs the auto finance unit drive time, which is buys basically all the loans from Carvana, all the auto loans that they make, whatever. I'm not going to get into all the plumbing. Well, Remember what we said? He, he was selling stock every day, Ernie Garcia the second. He still hasn't sold a share in like four months or three, three or four months. People believe there's an SEC investigation going on. I'm not saying that there is. There might be. But they have a securitization in the market right now. What does that mean? They're, they're trying to raise debt in the market to fund their operations. But I think people are concerned. Why haven't they raised equity? Well, maybe there's something going on with the SEC. So perfect storm for them. Throw them the top that funding costs have moved a little bit higher as the two-year yields have moved higher as we've talked. And it's a perfect storm. And I think a lot of the people that were infatuated with the business model are now getting out, seeing that it's vulnerable. That's it on that name. But certainly piercing through 200 today. Great movie, by the way, Perfect Storm, along with the movie Wall Street. Just for context, on I think it was August 10th of this year, Carvana, symbol there is CVNA, made an all-time high of $376.83. It is currently now either side of $200. Dan, that is a 47% move. Again, not an insignificant company. It's a $35 billion company. Again, getting back to some of the things we said earlier, the moves to the downside in many of these names has been, and I'm going to use this word, I'm choosing to use this word, Dan Nathan, historic. Yeah, and listen, I think that you're going to hear this a lot, and guy, you hate to hear it. It's a stock picker's market. It's a market of stocks. You know, AutoNation is a stock that we were using it as a comparison to Carvana from a valuation standpoint, and despite obviously far less growth, but this stock's down only 10%, and it kind of reflects some of those kind of fundamentals that you're talking about in the used car market, but then to Danny's point, there just seems to be something else going on with that Carvana. So, you know, like some people like to say, there's always a bull market somewhere, right, guy? I've heard that before. There's also this thing out there, which is, it's ridiculous that now in 2021, almost 2022, something that's as old as time is all of a sudden this groundbreaking phenomena. It's called buy now, pay later. It should be called buy now, maybe never pay again, because that's what's going on. And for <laughs> you, for you listeners of On The Tape, you will know once again that Danny Moses has been talking about this since the summer. So, Knock yourself out, Danny Moses, because buy now, pay later is under the microscope. Yeah, these are the Sears layaway plans from, you know, when you were shopping at Sears, guy, long time ago. That's all it is. This shouldn't be a surprise. People in Congress have been calling for oversight on this buy now, pay later. And what we said from the outset is this is not a financial tech industry. These are just lenders. And the state of California classified these businesses as such months ago and called them actually loans, which opened up Pandora's box for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to have oversight on them. And for everyone who doesn't remember what the CFPB was, 
It was started by Liz Warren after the financial crisis under Obama in 2011 and basically got shut down when when Trump took over. So they went after payday lenders at the time. They went after those for-profit colleges, right, that that showed no ability for these students to ever pay back those loans, yet they were using federal money to do it. So it's out there actually to protect the consumer. So people can be upset about regulation, but let me give you guys this stat. Do you know that 43% of people that have used buy now, pay later, have actually not paid at least once in the last two years, right? And what the CFPB is concerned about is it's a soft credit pull to get approval. It happens in seconds at point of sale. You make like a quick decision to buy something, but it has no proof. Can these people afford to pay it back? And so they normally pay it back over four payments or six payments over two to three months. What's happening now is you're starting to see defaults tick up. You're starting to see late payment fees, which is CFPB hates. And that's what they want to monitor companies from charging the consumer. And they're just trying to protect the consumer right now. So you're seeing names like a firm get hit here. PayPal, obviously, that's not their core business, but they're obviously part of that as well. So you're starting to see this. I think it was getting out there. Like I said, this isn't new, but it's another industry. And Washington is starting to show its claws, right? You got DOJ coming after short sellers. You got the SEC wanting longs, wanting hedge funds to not be able to use swaps anymore like Archegos did to not disclose their large positions because they want to make sure the market runs a little more healthy. So we get little more and little more of this stuff. And I got to tell you guys, if the market keeps selling off, there'll be a lot more industries that people look at. I know we talked about this a little bit because it looked like there was like a barrage of deals. Remember when Square Square's getting hit today too, because they, I think the number was $29 billion are trying to buy after pay, or they still are trying to buy after pay. So that's a BNPL. We know that PayPal, I think maybe made an acquisition in Japan in the space. Amazon did a deal with a firm. What is it about the consumer right now? What is it about the consumer's balance sheet that would lead all of these companies to move into this space so hard? Or does it say something more about their own business models? They're taking advantage of consumer behavior and trying to clip that, I'm going to say subprime customer, but think about it. It's negative selection. If you're actually going to click on something, you're going to buy it for $60 and pay $15 a month over four months. Is that really a good credit? And you know, I think the problem is it's a quote, soft credit pull. So people don't think it actually is going to harm their credit. If you miss a payment, it will harm your credit. And that's what the CFPB is concerned about. There's a company that everybody got geeked up about. And for the life of me, Dan Nathan, I couldn't figure this one out. What I've said for a long time, there was nothing innovative about this company except their name and the hair. Well, that name is Robin Hood. And as we sit here today, that stock is down 78%, 78% from that $85 high, which made zero sense to me. Now we're talking about a stock with an 1818 handle. So, you know, again, all this innovation, there's nothing innovative about buy now, pay later. And quite frankly, there was nothing innovative about Robin Hood other than the fact that people got all excited about it. And oh, by the way, just quickly, because it's worth mentioning, Square doesn't call themselves Square anymore, but that stock's down 41% from its all-time high as well. I mean, it's, again, remarkable some of these moves only getting shrouded by, again, a word I'm choosing to use, the fact that the broader market has really not moved. Yeah, I think what's fascinating that we're talking about Robinhood is actually a publicly listed stock at the end of 2021 with a $15 billion market cap, a, a nearly $20 billion enterprise value. And I don't say that because it sounds like a big number. It sounds like a small number now compared to where the company went public, the highs that it traded at. But what's interesting to me that we're talking about this stock right now is that we are 
bookending 2021 with the what started in January is this meme stock frenzy. I mean, when we started this podcast, we literally couldn't stop talking about it because it, none of it made any sense to any of the frameworks that we kind of grew up with in this business, right? And then when you think about what's going on with these meme stocks, GameStop and AMC over the last week or two, it seems like the air is coming out of this retail trade. And I know Guy, I heard you say it, I think on Fast Money the other night, the whole notion that these people who hold these stocks, that they think it's a movement, and if they just hold them and don't sell them, doesn't mean that they can go down. Well, they're about to learn the hard way. And I think a lot of these people, and it goes back to Robin Hood again, should have realized this with that Dogecoin right? Because when that thing was going up and then everybody was pumping it like Elon Musk and a whole host of other influencers, that sort of thing, that was the Robin Hood story. What percentage of their revenues in Q2 right before they went public were doge? Remember the number, Danny? Wasn't it somewhere like in the high teens or something like that? And then the stock got nailed because the Q3 numbers were a disaster because doge died. And continuous regulatory mishaps also in every aspect of their business, right? They paid more fines than any broker ever for operating a broker dealer. It's, it's, it's awful. But just so you don't think we're like going all Ebenezer Scrooge on you folks, there are things out there that sort of make a little bit of sense. Now, I'm not certain the banks are, but I will tell you, I do believe in my opinion that the resource stocks, which are volatile as hell, I get it. I think though some of these resource names are interesting. I think Alcoa was just added to the S&P 500. That had a big move earlier this week. And I also believe, Dan Nathan, that some of these big cap pharma names that have been under considerable pressure are going to get off the mat early in 2022. So I still think there's some pockets of places you can be. But again, the growth names, high valuation growth names, I still think there is significant room to the downside. So Guy, I like what you did there. We just kind of had this plethora of negativity as it relates to stocks in, in, in certain parts of the market here. And so we're trying to be a little constructive. That's what we're doing in this segment. And, and, I, and I agree with you. I think there's going to be areas that make sense. To me, I've mentioned them on a few occasions. I think some of these kind of reopening trades, they keep getting pushed out, but sooner or later, they're going to work, whether it be the airlines, whether it be some of these other hospitality names, whether it be, I do like the, I know that this, this is something that uh, guy you've been on all year, the GM and the Ford in some ways. And this is one of the things it would be really nice if some of these stocks pulled back a little bit and gave you the opportunity to buy them and think about 2022 as a year where certain trends might continue to play out and then certain stories get revalued, that sort of thing. But if we don't have that broad market pullback, right, where there's a little fear all over the place, not just in these names that did really well during the pandemic in 2020 that are getting killed now, some of the ones that we started this conversation with, it really would be nice to finally get a 10% plus peak to trough decline. And then you kind of set the stage for maybe what could be a constructive return environment, especially if inflation doesn't end up being as bad as people think in 2022, and maybe growth does surprise the upside, it would be nice to be able to buy some stocks, some sectors, some themes at reasonable valuations. Obviously, in 1966, the Beach Boys released what a lot of people think is one of the top 10 albums of all time. That would be Pet Sounds. I mentioned that Danny Moses because one of my favorite songs on that album is Wouldn't It Be Nice? Well, Danny Moses, give me something nice. Instead of all this doom and gloom shit that we've been dropping for the last 25 minutes, give me what you think is nice moving forward. Being long puts, is that does that count as a long? <laughs> no, that does not um, count. That I, does not count. Okay, okay. Growth to value, right? We're starting to see value outperform growth. And I think this gamification experiment, 
on the Coinbase and the DraftKings and, and Robinhood, I think people need to just take a step back and stop trying to make so much money in such a short period of time and buy companies that have quality. There's something called the dogs of the Dow, right? The highest dividend stocks are in the Dow industrials. Normally, dividend paying stocks are measured against 10-year yields. I'm a believer that 10-year yields aren't going to go up a lot because I don't think that they can. So good cash flow in companies that have high dividends, this is where I would go. And there are funds that are built around that. I, maybe there's a return here to active money management. Maybe. Maybe you can find a value fund that's actively managed, that has a great track record. Go out and look for it. Part of the problem has been the passive market. And we're seeing very one-way flows come in and it impacts everybody. And I'll just say this, you know, like hedge funds, when we start seeing returns, for 2021, I think people are going to be like, what the hell happened? I mean that really seriously. I hear stories of horrible performance. You know why? They were all going for the growthy stuff. The valuation didn't matter. And now what do they do? They're trapped in a bunch of really bad positions and really bad sectors. And they probably don't want to get rid of them just yet because goodness gracious, down 30, 40%. You've been sticking with something, you've been adding to it. You know what I mean? You finally get that pop, then you don't deserve to be in the business anymore. I agree. And one other sector, just to throw in Dan, and we've actually talked about it. I think I came on your guys' trading spaces brought to you by CME prior. And I said, I would own the utility index and look at that thing. I mean, it's not sexy. I get it. Look what it's done the last five days. I mean, it's up like 3%. Anyway, I know it's not sexy, but start to look for cash flowing companies, right? Sometimes getting exposed to those. Yes, you don't get rich quick, but you kind of you can kind of protect and grow over a long period of time. So. Yeah, but there is one irony about this whole year is that, you know, we talk about passive versus active. And the truth is, passive won because look at where the indices are and we know why. All the money that flew into, you know, 5 trillion plus stocks, right? And they were masking again. I guess this is how we're kind of putting a bow on this one. They were masking horrible stock picking performance all over the market in almost every sector. I could not agree with you more. And it's great on the way up because it basically makes the active managers underperform by definition, because if they don't have mock the exact index or they try to like not own one of these high flyers that's now getting killed, they will start to outperform. So those active money managers that stood firm and yes, maybe they underperformed by two, 3% a quarter over the last several quarters, but now they're going to, they're going to recoup that. Good will conquer evil. You know what I'm saying here, Dan Nathan, please. Good will conquer evil. And the truth will, will set, set me free. free. And I know someday I will find the key. Well, you know what, Danny Moses? Before we talk to Scott Wapner, you have found the key in the National Football League. Again, in the league where they play for pay. I mentioned your record 19-3 and three as we get into week 15-1-5. Please, Danny Moses, help a brother out here. Give me your pick or multiple picks for week one five. Just one pick this week given the 100 COVID cases. Who knows if anybody takes the field this week. I'm going to go with the Bills again. I was against them two weeks ago against the Patriots. I was on them against Tampa. Horrendous loss, but obviously in overtime there. Bills minus 10.5 against Carolina. Christian McCaffrey is out. It's a must win for the Bills. It's going to be cold and windy up there in Buffalo. I'll take them all day long laying the 10.5. The other so game that's intriguing like that I just don't want to pick. Go ahead, Dan. You're, you're not going to like it, Danny, but I, I, I'm with you on that pick there, buddy. I'm not going to take the other side of that. We're going to have to find something off-chain, if you will, okay. for me to try to work Fine. back my my 45 hunch that I'm out to you. And I think you did say I have until the Super Bowl before I have to kind of pay up. You can have as long as you want, Dan. You, I'll put you on a buy now, pay later program. That's fine. We'll talk. Yeah, do that. <laughs> Fair enough, right? When we come back, the three of us will speak with the great Scott Wapner of the CNBC Halftime Report. 
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Scott Wapner is the host of the Halftime Report, which airs weekdays from 12 noon to 1 p.m. on CNBC. He is also the author of When the Wolves Bite, which documents the battle between billionaire investors Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn over Herbalife. You can follow him on Twitter at Scott Wapner CNBC. Scott, welcome to On the Tape. Welcome, Scott Wapner, front stage. You'll get him in the calendars, fellas. Get him on your CNBC calendars. <laughs> what do we charge for those? Two for one. So everybody loves the song Born to Run. I happen to think it's the worst song on the album. The best song on the album, Scott Wapner, and oh, by the way, welcome, is Backstreets, the fourth song on the first side. I want to hear your backstory. I'm interested in it. I'm interested in your fandom, your backstory. How did Scott Wapner get to the level that he's at today? Well, I'm glad you didn't ask me anything else about the album because I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) A lot of people love Jungle Land. A lot of people love 10th Avenue Freeze Out. And then Thunder Road might be the greatest Bruce song of all time. But Scott has no interest in this. Talk to us. I want to hear how you got here. How I got here. Well, I didn't think I'd ever be here. So it's a pretty remarkable story about how I got here. I thought I was going to be a sports reporter or a sports anchor. At least that's what I always hoped to be. I always wanted to be a journalist. And I thought I would be in television in some capacity Grew up watching Howard Cosell and Bob Costas, Al Michaels, all those guys. And that's what I wanted to be. Those guys were my inspiration. So when I was in school, I did some internships and I covered sports here and there. Covered high school football on the side while I was in college for the St. Petersburg Times down in Tampa, Florida. Great town, that is. Would drive to these stadiums on a Friday night, Friday night lights. It was the epitome of Friday night lights, by the way. Not this football they have up here. Packed stadiums. It was the event, right? So I did that. And I got out of school, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I got lucky. I knew somebody who was the news director of a syndicated business program based in Washington, D.C. So I went back home to Maryland. I took that job, and it was an entry-level gig doing pretty much everything except for snaking the toilet at the end of the night. Although, if it was part of the requirements, I probably would have done it at that point. So I did that and I learned the ground up business. I got on the air a little bit. And then I got a job in New York as a reporter for a feed service. And I put together a tape. I got an agent and I got unbelievably lucky and got the biggest break of my life. I got a job offer down in Dallas, Texas for the Fox affiliate in Dallas. I had never done a live shot in my life. I had never been on live television in any capacity. And Dallas was such a burgeoning business town. Mark Cuban was coming of age, if you will. So they wanted to expand their business coverage. You had a lot of Fortune 500 companies down there. So I went down there to be their franchise business reporter and it was like boot camp. It was like television grad school. Live shots, screwed up live shots, one after the other, walk through the newsroom at the end of the night with your tail between your legs, like you don't know what you're doing. And I spent two years down there, and I figured out the business, and I figured out what I was doing. And 
I got lucky again. I wanted to move back to New York, and I got hired by CNBC to be a correspondent on the Wall Street Journal report with the fabulous and great anchor, the iconic business anchor, Consuelo Mack. And I started there. I worked there for about a year, and then I got hired, if you want to call it that, at regular CNBC. And I slowly worked my way up and realized that if I wanted to do something at CNBC that was meaningful, it wasn't going to be in sports, it was going to be in the markets. And I covered the markets, and I learned the markets, and then I got a nice break and got a show. And here we are 10 years later. It's interesting because you and I, Matt Scott, I think it was easily 10 years ago, you were filling in every once in a while an Options Action. That was my show that was on at 1130 Friday nights back then. And it did work its way up a little bit. But you and I became fast friends. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that you've had a decade go by. The Halftime Report, which is your show, is a decade old, which is pretty amazing. I mean, Guy Adami often says on this show, I think Danny gets a little sick of it, if we make it till January, fast money is going to be 15 years old. It's pretty astounding to have these sorts of run. And I will tell you this, man, you came on the scene, you had this event, you wrote a book about it, When the Wolves Bite. It was back in January 2013. I've heard it described as the moment that time stopped on Wall Street. Every trading desk, people on Bloomberg's, people on tech, they're like, are you watching this? You watch. You had this battle between Carl Icahn, legendary investor, and Bill Ackman, also a legendary investor, over a company that, what was it, Danny? Four billion market cap Herbalife? I mean, really, right? It, it became this battleground stat, and it happened on your air over the course of an hour. How did that happen? How did that come about? Well, it was undoubtedly, up to that point, the most important moment of my career, certainly as a business journalist at CNBC. I had never met Bill Ackman before, and I think Carl had been on with me on the first day or so that I started doing the halftime report, but I had never met him either, and I had only spoken to him on live television that one time. And I saw that Carl was being interviewed on a competing network, and I happened to be walking by somebody's desk, and it was on. So I stopped and I started watching it, and I thought it was you know, pretty fascinating. Here he was destroying Ackman on live television, eviscerating the guy, right? So I was like, man, this is unbelievable. So I just took it on a whim and I emailed Ackman. I got his email from somebody, I don't remember who. And I emailed him and I didn't hear anything back right away. I wasn't really thinking much about it. I had a dinner that evening in the city with a, a friend I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was sitting in the lounge of a hotel where the restaurant was waiting for my friend to arrive. And Ackman responded to my email. He said, I'm going to send you a statement. So I responded, hey, you know, great. That's awesome. I'm going to get a statement. Let the network know I'm going to get a statement from Ackman about what Icon had said about him earlier in the afternoon. I mean, it was a few hours prior to that. And then I asked Bill, hey, why don't you just come on tomorrow and respond? And he said, okay, I'll do it. So I was like, wow, okay, that's awesome. I go to have my dinner. My friend arrives. I go sit down at the restaurant. Phone rings. It's Ackman. I have to excuse myself and go out to the lobby. We're talking about the logistics for the next day. So we take care of that. I go back and sit down. Phone rings again. It's Ackman on the phone again. Excuse myself. Go back out to the lobby, the hotel. He's like, you know what? I'll do it some other time. I'm not going to come on. It'll, it'll just be a sideshow. But I promise you I'll come on some other time. I'm like, hey, it's all good. No problem. Go back. 
sit at the dinner with my friend, continue the conversation. A few minutes later, the phone rings. It's Bill Ackman. Excuse myself. I go back out to the lobby. He's like, you know what? Bleep it. I'll do it. So I was like, all right, we're good. Like, are we actually doing this now? Because <laughs> I, I really want to have dinner with my friend. I hadn't seen him a long time. <laughs> right? I haven't even had time for the conversation yet. So Ackman was locked in. And one of our producers let Icon know that Ackman was going to come on to respond, that he may want to watch whatever he says. So we're at the Stock Exchange doing my show, where I normally don't do it, but we were down there that day for whatever logistical reason brought us down there. So we're doing the show. I start out with Ackman. I'm doing my thing. They tell me in my ear that Icon had called in to the control room and he would come on. So in the midst of the conversation with Bill, I say, I think I said this on live television, something to the effect of, they tell me that Icon is on the phone and that he wants to respond to you. We can bring him in right now and we can do this on live television. I may have only given them that one option, even though it sounded like I was giving him two. So I think Bill felt like, well, at that point, it'd be kind of hard to say no. So we brought Icon in and... All hell broke loose. Just as a little background real quickly for the listener who's maybe not familiar with what happened is that Bill Ackman had a very high profile short call on this stock called Herbalife. And it was high short interest. Again, it wasn't a huge market cap. It was a multi-level marketing company. And Carl Icahn took the opposite side of it and very vocally. He said, we think this is a good investment. And so the stock was crazy volatile. It was in Bill Ackman's face. And to your point, so you had seen Icahn on another network talking some smack about Ackman. And then here we are. You had Ackman on, Carl calls in, and then what happens? Well, I just felt like that was an opportunity to make something happen, which is why I reached out to Bill. It was an opportunity for a moment, which is rare. You only get so many opportunities to have a real moment in television. So, okay, they start going at it. And, you know, I'm just trying to stay out of the way. Just try to sort of guide each person, try and get what I need to out of each one and try and make it some semblance of a coherent conversation rather than just, you know, one insult after the other. But it sort of became one insult after the other and me kind of staying out of the way until I tried to prod Icon to admit or reveal more about his Herbalife trade, which he hadn't really done so to that point, to which he got mad at me and said, the producer told him he could come on and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. He was never coming on my show ever again. He said, Max Myers said I could say whatever I want. May have put an expletive in there along the way or two. And so it ended eventually. We went about 26 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that, uninterrupted. And finally, the show came to an end. And the whole time, my phone is blowing up and my email is blowing up. And I think I was a little shell-shocked when it was was all over. I remember getting off the set and people were reaching out to me and I sort of felt like it was a moment as those guys were battling on live TV because I was at the stock exchange, there were traders all around the floor at their posts and you could hear on the delay, the oohs and the ahs as one person, let's say Carl would insult Bill again, two seconds later on the delay, you would hear, oh, and then the next guy would say something and it'd be quiet. And then you'd hear the same sort of reaction after another delay. So it ended and it was one of those moments. Did you even care about the bullet points related to the short and the bullet points related to the long thesis or the short thesis? Or are you just playing literally intermediary and just hearing both sides? Did you have a personal opinion on that? No, 
No, the story was too new for me to even have had a moment to research the fundamental case from each side. I didn't know much about Herbalife from a hole in the wall, if anything. I mean, the story was so new at that point. Bill had recently had, I think it was before Christmas, late or mid-December, he had revealed this short, and Icon happened to hear about it, and they had had a long history. This doesn't happen without the history between the two. It wasn't like Icon was an innocent bystander and happened to see that Bill was so publicly short in the magnitude that he was, 20% of his fund is a large position. I don't need to tell you. So they had had a history of 10 years prior, there was a deal that had gone bad and they had a lawsuit against each other. So there's already a lot of animus there. And it festers throughout the years. And I think Icon had sort of waited for the opportunity to try and get Bill back. And this was the moment that Bill walked right into without really realizing it. It's funny. I feel like today, modern times, I want to say modern times, eight years later, we have this going on, mostly on the internet, Wall Street bets, Reddit. You have people that are vocally long something going after, quote, a short seller. And what's interesting about how that played out was Ackman presented his thesis and Icon talked about his. I think Icon cared more that Ackman might be wrong short term than he was any concerned about long term FTC issues or were they doing anything marketing illegally. And he exposed himself, Ackman. And then once the street knows that, if you're kind of short that stock, we weren't short at the stock at the time, but just goes to show once you're out there, you unveil that. Sometimes it can really backfire against you. And Carl Icon would be the guy there, I'm guessing, if Herbalife wanted money on their balance sheet, wanted to issue debt, he'd be more than happy to buy it just to prove his point and then let ego get in the way of fundamentals. And that's the danger. And you deal with egos a lot, not just with Ackman and Icon. And I admire what you do because there'll probably be times where I would be jumping off the set that you do when you have people on. So my question to you, how do you balance that and maintain equilibrium without getting emotional, which you tend not to do? Once in a while, you'll get a little heated, it seems like. But how do you do that and just hear both sides of the story? I mean, I think that's what I'm paid to do. I think that's what the job, frankly, is, is not to let your emotion get in the way or... I kept telling myself as that whole thing was unfolding, don't make yourself part of the story. Don't get all blustery and the story ends up more about you and you take away from the substance of the battle is really what it became. I just tried to remind myself of that, but I was just so in the moment and I really wanted to hear what they had to say and just listen to their argument. I mean, I knew enough to sit back and let it breathe. The substance and the style of our show at that point was we had the ability to do a little longer breath interviews. So I had that on my side. I had the producers in the booth on my side, so to speak. I think we were all in sort of simpatico of what we had fallen into and just sort of let it breathe. As I said before, these moments are rare. When you have one, you want to let it go. They just don't happen that often. And in a case like that, Frankly, I just don't think it'll ever happen again. I mean, I think the reaction to that by many of Bill and Carl's contemporaries was one of, wow, that was amazing. And holy crap, we all looked bad as a result of two big hedge fund managers going on live television and yelling and insulting each other about a specific position, which is why you really haven't had anything like that since. And I just think the characters that were involved were so unique in the industry and to one another. There was that backstory, as I said, that you're just not going to find that again, regardless of what the story is. I just think times are different. So Scott, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it because then I'm going to ask Danny a question. So the question to you is that you can ponder 
Who plays Scott Wapner in the movie? Think about that for a second. And Danny, the backstory to the backstory is you probably remember Carl Icahn was on the other side of one of these. I think it was 2002, 2003 with Conseco. He was short that. And Erwin Jacobs, who some of you folks might know, he actually went and took a full page ad, I think, in the Wall Street Journal telling people, do not lend your shares out for the short sellers. So Carl actually got squeezed. And I think he learned his lesson then, Danny Moses. But now, Scott, please, who plays Scott Wapner in the movie? I was going to say, uh, you know, I don't know. Ryan Reynolds is a cool dude. Go with him. Maybe we could do a gin and vodka taste off and you could be the judge of that and get Ryan Riddle's invite. Exactly. Scott, one of the things I think is pretty fascinating. Listen, you wrote the book on it. And I remember thinking at the time, okay, maybe it's going to be a short. You went into the backstory. You just mentioned the backstory about these two guys. That was really fascinating. Anyone who has not read this book and you're interested in these sorts of situations, When the Wolves Bite was fascinating. And I do hope they make a movie out of it someday. Well, you're nice to say that. They both have such colorful backstories. It was interesting to look into each person's life to try and understand how they got to where they are now. One came from a little more means than the other. Carl was an entirely self-made guy. Bill was a brilliant person. It's no accident that Bill Ackman is where he is, and it wasn't by being born on third base either. He's one of the sharpest guys that I've ever met. He's a very polarizing individual, so there are people who certainly have opinions on either side of him, but you can't take away his intellect in any stretch. And he had made some incredible trades throughout his career to become the iconic person that he is before the Herbalife thing. It's an interesting dynamic in the psyche and the world of trading that you guys understand better than me. You guys are actually have been in the game and in some respects still are in the game. It's a real lesson into the emotion of trading. You can have such conviction about a position that you put on, whether it's the so-called big short or anything else. But the moment that the rules of the game change, you need to be nimble and smart enough and humble enough to admit it and move on. And I think in this respect, and in maybe another respect or two, I'm not sure that Ackman in that moment was able to identify that. And then the tidal wave had already started rolling over and it was hard to get out of the way, if not impossible at that point. You know, the halftime report, as Dan mentioned, 10 years old and it's must watch TV. Absolutely. And one of the many wonderful things about it is so many different voices each day and you get to navigate and talk about and foster those relationships What have you found to be the most challenging aspect of that show? Because you're dealing with a lot of personalities, a lot of egos, a lot of people. How do you navigate that show and how do you keep it as tight as it is? Well, I think you have to understand what you're dealing with going in. You're going to have strong opinions, like you said. And the show is really about, just as your show is, it's about the people who are on the show. The viewer, I think, wants to hear the conversation They enjoy the camaraderie that all of you have and my panel has, and they want ideas. And at the end of the day, whatever I have to do to foster a good conversation, to spotlight the camaraderie that everybody has to make it entertaining, and then to try and get as many ideas as I possibly can, while at the same time scrutinizing those ideas in my own way or making people go a little bit further than their comfort zone, I think that's the ethos of what we try and do every day, at least the way that I think about what I'm trying to get out of of every broadcast. 
how can I come up with what I think is going to be a good conversation to keep people engaged? How can I have people debate each other without getting nasty with one another? And I think that speaks to the camaraderie that you build as a team or my investment committee, as I call them. And then how can you get critical ideas out of people and then push them to really defend their ideas, to distill the most important and interesting points down so that the viewer leaves fully understanding why somebody pitched a specific idea that they did, rather than just saying the name of a ticker and what have you. When you're on air and you get the sense that someone, not bait and switched you, but got there just to quote, talk their book, and it doesn't have the level of intellect or conviction attached to it, and you see it, do you go for the jugular and kind of give the other side? Because I've seen you do that. How do you measure that in real time as you're on air with somebody? I just do it. I think that's one of the most important parts of my job. Things have to pass the smell test. If I'm skeptical about something that somebody says, I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of research. I like to use people's past words in the way that I interview people. It's like, hey, two months ago you said this, and then three weeks ago you said this. So what do you think about that now? You can't tell me a different story today based on what you said three months ago and three weeks ago. I like to hold people to account. I think that's where the viewer gets the most out of the conversation that we want to have. I'm certainly not shy about doing it. And I just also make sure that I'm as present as I can possibly be, that I'm listening to everything that they're saying. I may have an idea of the kinds of questions that I want to ask, but I'm not prisoner to those. I know what I want to cover, but if I don't get to something that I had on my list because I had to react or respond or push on something that they said, I'd rather do that. I think there's more out of this game than just going down a list and asking questions of people. You mentioned, Scott, after the Icon Ackman thing, that a lot of the hedge fund titans probably said, not a great look for all of us here, right? I spoke with some yeah. that evening. I said, who do you think won? And this very notable hedge fund guy said they both lost. And I think there was a prevailing thought that it was just a bad look for everybody involved. Yeah. You got these two billionaires on television yelling at each other over a stupid trade. And I don't think that they thought it was a great look for the industry at large. I think one of the signatures of the halftime report, and specifically your reporting, is that you have each week there's just a hedge fund titan that comes on your show that you're speaking with. They're opening the kimono about their investment thesis or how they feel about the Fed or some specific name. So you got over that pretty quickly. And I do think that it's very unique to your program, the people that come on, Leon Cooperman and Jim Chanos and Mark Lazary. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'll be honest with you. None of that happens had the Icon Ackman thing not happened. Because I knew that that was the kind of moment that everybody stopped, as you said, and watched. So I knew that I had more name recognition and more notoriety after that. So immediately after that, I reached out to people. I reached out cold to people. I got their emails. I knew that they most likely had watched it or at the very least had heard about it. And I tried to meet with people, take them out for drinks, go out for dinner, let me come by the office, let me develop a Rolodex that I never really had before. And that's sort of what changed the game for me at CNBC and gave me my turf, if you will, just an area that I could try and distinguish myself. We have people who cover M&A and do it incredibly well. We have people who do this or do that. I decided that after that, my thing was going to be, let me try and just build a Rolodex of people in the business who matter. And slowly over time, 
I was able to, and it's been a game changer. I talk to many more people off air than you'll ever see on. It just helps me understand what the real money view of the markets is on any given day so that I can use anecdotes from conversations that I have with any of the names of the people that you mentioned, Dan, or anybody else who remains nameless, just to help me formulate how different people are thinking about the market. It helps me formulate questions for my panel. It helps me, Guy, think about just what the broader industry at large is thinking about. But I'll trace it all back to, to that one event. Without that, it doesn't get my name out there. It doesn't give me the platform that I'm grateful to have now. And I like talking to those people. I like talking to the people who are making the markets go, the ones who matter most. Absolutely. And listen, I find it fascinating as well. And you've done an amazing job. And one of the things that we talk about, and I know you know my views because we go back and forth on Twitter about my views about the Federal Reserve. And those are just my opinions. I'm not suggesting I'm right. But that's one of the topics that's front and center now. And you hear from everybody. I'm just curious, what do you find the consensus, if there is a consensus to be, about the role of the Fed in the market and their participation in the market? I think the prevailing thought is probably, if I polled everybody blindly, it's probably, well, they may have stayed a little too long, that they could have started to make this policy change that they just announced a little bit earlier. I don't think anybody is naive to the fact of the market has gone up the way it has in large part because of the amount of liquidity that the Fed has provided to the system. I think it's obviously enabled a certain group of stocks more than any other, high multiple, high price to sales, high valuation stocks out of the technology space to go up in a perhaps disproportionate way relative to some others. I don't know that people that I talk to would, for lack of a better word, fault the Fed. You're fairly, as you said, guy critical of what the Fed has done. I don't think they would be critical I think that you could certainly suggest that they've stayed around a little too long and maybe there wasn't the need to buy as many mortgage bonds, let's say in more recent history, given where the economy is and where the housing market is and all of that's fair game. But when you're dealing with the kind of crisis that we've been dealing with, the likes of which none of us have ever seen because none of us were alive 100 years ago to see the last time we've had a global pandemic of this magnitude. I think the Fed deserves a bit of a pass, and I also think that the Fed has been more right than wrong. I don't think you can blame a lot of things that are going on right now in the system on the Fed. Have they distorted the bond market? Have they distorted the stock market to some respects? If you want to say that because of the policy in and of itself, fine. But I don't think that the Fed deserves blame for a large amount of the inflation that's out there, for example. I think that's more caused by the pandemic and turning a, an economy completely off and then turning it back on. But I think the prevailing view, to bring it back to what you're talking about, is that the Fed did what it had to do. The Fed probably deserves the benefit of the doubt. Jay Powell's been pretty right. Okay, so transitory. All right, maybe they weren't right about that. But okay, what are you going to do about it now? And they're going to try and catch up and hopefully not make a mistake. Well, Judge, I will say that that was a very balanced answer. Maybe you'll have Powell on at some point. I'm not sure if you've, you've had it. That's truly what I believe, though. It's when the market goes down that people look to blame somebody excuses. So when you have an unlimited balance sheet that they're using, they're not going to be proven, quote, wrong until much later, which dovetails into 
what I know must frustrate you from time to time when you look at certain stocks or people talking about names that you know are so overvalued, that trade on momentum, that if you truly knew that the Fed was going to pull liquidity out of the market and this free money would disappear, you have to know in the back of your mind that there's some type of reversion to the mean coming, that the Fed will be blamed for a policy mistake if they got this wrong. I agree with what you're saying. They were in a tough spot. And I will say this one thing. I was in disagreement in 2008 when they came in with all these programs. I was wrong. In hindsight, they had no idea what they were dealing with. We didn't even know the depths of how bad it was going to be. But they created the TALF and TARP. At some point after 2008 and 2009, Ben Bernanke became so obsessed with the stock market as a tool. And that, I know a guy, I'm feeding right into guy's fire, but that's been their mandate now for years. And that has been the gauge, and it has. And you're going to try to pull that away. That's going to be a painful withdrawal. And so I think it remains to be seen, but I'll, I'll, let, guy, <laughs> I'll let guy opine. But I, I, I think they'll be judged poorly later, but it's only going to take a down market with someone to blame that's going to do that. And Scott, listen, I hear everything you're saying. I can't disagree with that. My biggest problem, and I have many, but the biggest one is, in my opinion, again, it's the wealth gap that's been created. And the difference between the have and the have nots in this country has never been wider. And you know, I put that in large part at the feet of the Federal Reserve. Okay. So you didn't go there initially. I'm not going to sit here and disagree with you and suggest that the Fed goosing the stock market because of its policy hasn't had a devastating impact on the issue of income inequality. Based on the percentage of people in this country who own the majority of stocks relative to others, it's undeniable that Fed policy has helped the stock market and its incredible gains in this unprecedented bull market. I hear you on that, but to lay blame at the feet of the Fed for that, I think is a little bit harsh, given the kind of environment that we've been in and the fact that in large part, the Fed has been the only one minding the store and that Ben Bernanke time after time after time sat before Congress and said, you people need to get your fiscal policy in order to match whatever we're doing from a monetary policy standpoint. And in large part, that fell on deaf ears and it fell on the floor. So the Fed was left as the last resort, if you will, to come in and try and save the system. Now, obviously, we've printed a hell of a lot of money to deal with the fallout of the pandemic. So certainly lawmakers arrived when they absolutely had to. But I just think to put all of that at the feet of the Fed, I think that is an unintended consequence of the Fed policy of the last 13 years rather than a method of the Fed policy. I just simply see it that way. All right, let's pivot for a second here because Scott and I had this really funny night. It was about seven or eight years ago, sharing a bottle of scotch. And I had my buddy Iggy with me. And we're just kind of laying back after a day of skiing. And I don't even know how we got to this topic. But Scott busts out that he has this collection of signed Sports Illustrated covers by almost every major super athlete of the 80s and possibly early 90s. And my buddy Iggy and I are sitting here listening to this. And we're like, what? Do you have him? Yeah. He's got a story with all of them too. You got to tell Danny and Guy and you got to tell our listener. We talked about this for hours and I bug the shit out of you all the time. Now I'm bugging the shit out of our listener. You got to hear this story about how you got into this in the 80s when you were in high school and some of the memorabilia that you picked up over the years. So I mentioned to you at the outset how I I grew up a sports nut, and I always thought I was going to do that. 
I happened to meet a couple of guys through my tennis travails. When I was younger, I really wanted to be a professional tennis player. I think I had some pipe dreams that one day that was actually going to happen. <laughs> I guess, thankfully, I was wrong because I love what I do now. I met these two guys on the tennis court, and they lived in my neighborhood, and we were friends. We played every day. And one of them maybe was my age, and he had an older brother who I think was already in college. And they were telling me these stories about going to the hotels or the stadiums or arenas where these teams were either staying or playing and waiting after the game and getting autographs. And they were telling me story after story about these big name athletes that they had gotten them to sign their, I don't even think they were bringing anything really remarkable, like a piece of paper or whatever. So they offered to let me come along. And I had a big collection of Sports Illustrated's at that time. My grandmother had gotten me a subscription years prior and I saved all of them. I just loved the old SI covers and I loved reading the old magazines. Where are they now? Stuff where you see the great athlete of today when he was a kid in high school, I mean, he was throwing like 90 miles an hour and was a stud back then, was gonna be a, a superstar. So I go and I can't remember what my first experience was. One of the first was the New Jersey Generals of the USFL were playing at Bird Stadium where the University of Maryland football team plays. So I go with these guys and I've got my stuff with me and somehow they know where they're coming out and when. And we're just standing there. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. So I've got my SI, I think with Herschel from Georgia. And I think I have Flutie from, I can't remember if I got Flutie to sign the SI from the Boston College, Miami Miracle, or just a piece of paper. And I got that sign. I was like, man, this is pretty cool. So that morphed into going down, let's say, when the Lakers came to town. So I figured out where the hotel was, where the Lakers would stay when they came to play the Washington Bullets. And we would go and we would sit in the lobby. And these were different times. Security never said a word. They let you walk right in. We'd be sitting there like two or three schmoes in the lobby of a very nice hotel in Crystal City, Virginia. I can't remember the name of the hotel, but I remember literally sitting in the hotel and waiting for the Lakers to come back after they had played the Bullets. And in comes Magic Johnson in his fur coat. And we're like, holy, you know, whatever. One by one, Lakers come in. Magic signs my Sports Illustrated. I probably had like two or three, signs them all. Byron Scott, I get worthy to sign, I think a cover from when he was at North Carolina. And Kareem comes in, and Kareem at that point was notoriously a little bit difficult, I think is fair to say. And he said no. So we're like, whatever. You just move on. I had these books of blank pages with me too. Get literally like the whole team. AC Green, Byron Scott, Michael Cooper, Pat Riley. So we just is like wash, rinse, repeat. Look at the schedule. It became, whose cover do you have? What game's coming up? And who can you get? And it was Gretzky, and it was Lemieux, and it was Dr. J, and Michael Jordan, and Carl Malone, and Charles Barkley, and every major, for the most part, NBA player of the 80s go down to football team hotels. San Francisco 49ers come in, Jerry Rice. Joe Montana, Steve Young, Giants, Lawrence Taylor, 
it was literally like shooting fish in a barrel. I have these pennants, you know, those felt pennants that I still have hanging up in a room in, in my house. Signed pennant from the Bulls. Signed pennant from the Edmonton Oilers. Gretzky, Yari Curry, Paul Coffey. I could go down the list of all these guys. The Atlanta Hawks, Dominique, Willis Reed, I think was the coach at that point, have him on there. From one sport to the next, and I was able to amass a pretty fun and interesting collection at a time where it was just different. Could you imagine? You could do nothing like that today. We used to drive up to the old Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, and we'd time it so that we'd get there. Remember, we didn't go to the games. We didn't have any money to go to the games. We would drive to the parking lot, and we'd get there 15 to 20 minutes before the game ended. We'd park, and we'd walk down the ramp where the bus was parked. No one would say anything to you. We'd literally stand outside the door of the bus and wait for the guys to come out after the game. You were the only ones there. And what are they going to say? No. And one of the best stories I have, and it sort of speaks to the kind of guy that Magic Johnson is, I go down to the hotel, and I've got my pennant, trying to get all the Lakers on it. Because I didn't really have anything else at that point. It was like Sports Illustrated's and pennants. I think now, well, oh man, if I only had basketballs to get signed by all these teams, I'd have a museum in my house. But again, we didn't have the money to buy $50 basketballs for each team back then. I was only in high school. So we're going there. We're standing outside the bus. The Lakers come out one by one. And Magic Johnson says, just come on the bus. He just says, just come on the bus. And he's going to help me get everybody's signature on the pennant. And the trainer... I do remember his name, but I'm not going to mention it. The trainer said no. And I still remember to this day, Magic Johnson pleading with the guy, oh, come on, so-and-so, just let him on the bus, man. Just let him on the bus. This guy said no. Magic takes my pennant and he takes it on the bus and he gets everybody to sign it. But Kareem. You're like Cameron Crowe, almost famous. If he had this storyline, you probably could have written that. When I was living in Atlanta, I'll just tell you this. We would find out when anyone was coming in to play the Hawks and I was in college at Emory we would know what club that they were going into. I wouldn't tell you what type of club it was. There was all kinds of fun clubs in Atlanta at the time. And so we would show up there about two hours early during the game. And we would tell the bouncer, no, we're with the traveling team. We're with the Bulls. They want us to come ahead and kind of scout out things, whatever. But as soon as those players came in, we knew we were outed. We had to get the hell out of there. But we'd hang out with them for like five or 10 minutes and run around. But, you know, something like that. We don't have enough time to hear all the. There's great stories behind a lot of penance and a lot of this stuff. And I, Dan, you could NFT this stuff for him. You have. I've the, been telling him. I think he should write a book. He already wrote a book about a battle on Wall Street that happened on his show. I'd love to hear these stories. There's an OJ story. There's an MJ story. I've heard them all. I heard them over a bottle of Oban 14. I'll tell you about the OJ story because that's public. I wrote about it in Medium a few years ago. So these guys. This was early in the autograph hunt. We go down to the Watergate Hotel. Most people know the Watergate as an office building. Well, there's a hotel there as well. And the Monday Night Football crew, of which OJ was a part of at the time, was staying there. These guys that I mentioned at the outset who got me into this somehow knew that. I have absolutely no idea how. So we're going to go down there. My friend and I actually have tickets to the Monday Night Football game that night against the St. Louis Cardinals. We're too young to drive ourselves. Neither one of our parents are going to let us. It was my friend's family's season tickets that was going to get us into the game to begin with. My friends agree that the two of us would go with these two guys. We'd go to the Watergate Hotel, and then on the way home, they would drop us off at RFK Stadium. We'd watch the game and then catch a ride home with a friend of our parents who had also been at the game. So it's like the perfect plan. 
So OJ comes out, and I can't remember. Frank Gifford may have been on the team too, because I remember getting his autograph that night too. He may have been on the broadcast team. So they come out. OJ signs our autographs. He gets in his limousine, and there's like a little circular driveway in front of the Watergate. He's pulling out of the Watergate. He goes out. He comes right back in. Like he forgot something. He gets out and he runs into the hotel and he, he comes back. And I don't know what got into me. I said, OJ, can we have a ride to the game? And he said, sure, get in. So, so my friend and I get in the limousine, one on each side of OJ. And I don't know, it was like a 15 minute ride, 10, 15 minute ride to RFK from there, not very far at all. And we're sitting there. I think in complete disbelief for like 90% of it, like, duh, you know, like what the hell are you going to say to Juice at that point? You know, this is pre everything, obviously. And he's having small talk with us the whole time. And we get to RFK Stadium and we pull up to the VIP entrance and we get out and these guys are all snapping their pictures, you know, photographers. And we're like, oh my God, this is like unbelievable. Run in to the stadium. Obviously we thank OJ. We run into the stadium pay phones at that point. And we call our parents, we tell them what just happened. And then the murders happen in June of 94. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is crazy. I can't believe I was in a limousine with this guy way back when. And it just sort of brought everything back. And then there was the ESPN docuseries a few years ago, a five or six part series about OJ. And then I wrote about this and I posted it on Medium crazy story that is crazy was it cold out that night just curious <laughs> i don't remember i don't know if he was wearing gloves oh stop so listen scott we could do this for hours and i'm sure dan has already done it there's always somebody that you didn't get that you say shit i wish i got him or her in terms of the autographs and stuff who is your moby dick for a while it was muhammad ali and then i got lucky i got him i got him on the sports illustrated 75th anniversary cover which is framed and hanging in my house as we speak I held him in such reverence for so long. That was a good one. You didn't get DiMaggio. No one has. No one gets. So DiMaggio. I got DiMaggio, but the only thing I had to get him on was a blank piece of paper. I had these autograph books that I had along with the Sports Illustrated. I got DiMaggio and Hank Aaron in the same night at the hotel after the Cracker Jack Old Timers Classic at RFK Stadium, where they used to have that series. You'd read that book, wouldn't you? I'm always fascinated. What do you call it? it? The chase? Yeah, the chase. I thought you and I storyboarded this one night over over the scotch. I don't know. I wish I could answer Guy's question. And I know there's somebody out there that I really wanted to get. You know, for a while it was Kareem. And I finally got him. And I got him on like a 1967 Sports Illustrated when he was playing for UCLA as Lou Cinder. You know what I don't have? I've met him once, but I didn't have anything with me and it wasn't appropriate anyway. Mike Tyson. Oh, I'll tell you another one. Because I'm one of the biggest fans uh, around, and it caused me to start playing golf, and that was Tiger. And I've interviewed Tiger many times, and I just didn't feel it was appropriate. And I'm like, well, should I have done it? After he won the Masters in 97, you know, I got the, the iconic cover, right? I mean, it's such an iconic moment, and I literally, I cleared my schedule on Sundays if Tiger was in the hunt. And I'd sit there and I'd watch it. I'm a big fan of that guy, the way he plays golf. And I'd never got that. So I know you're a huge hockey fan. And I know Dan, his eyes are rolling in the back of his head. But 
for me, it would have been like a Gordie Howe, a Bobby Orr. But one of the great Sports Illustrated covers, I remember as a kid, was Bobby Carpenter. I was always fascinated by such a young person being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Well, he played for your Washington Caps. Did you get that one? I did, and it was a cover that said the can't-miss kid. I still remember it. That was the caption on it. Guess what? He missed. <laughs> he missed. He was a ranger, too, as by the way, as you know. He was good, though. I think he was, well, I think he was the first American-born player to score 50 goals. Yeah, but he did not, I know Dan is like, oh, stop, but he definitely did not have the career that, you know, when you read that article back then, you thought he was the next coming. I don't know if you heard me. I said I did get Gordie Howe, by the way. Of course you did. Sweet cover. I got Gretzky on a really early cover, too. You'd love it. When he was an oiler? Yeah. Actually, I posted it, I think, the other day when Rex Chapman was asking for people to post sports magazine covers. I posted a montage of four covers that I had. I think I posted that one. I can't remember. Super 70s sports guy, probably one of the best follows on all of Twitter. It's like literally he's tapped into our brains for whatever reason. Guy and I get asked this question all the time because we don't work for CNBC. We are contributors. Guy has been there, what, 37 years you've been on there, Eric? It'll be 38 years in February. I was afraid that I was going to misspeak earlier when I said none of us have been around since the other pandemic, but I thought I was too cliche to say except for God. I traded through the 1918 (laughs) pandemic. No, but the people that we've met a lot, and I know you'd probably answer the question the same way, but you are truly one of these people that we've just enjoyed working with, become friends with. We learn from your insight, the tenacity that you have about doing your job. It shows every day on the halftime report. So Guy and I really appreciate you coming on here. Danny, who you've gotten to know through us over the course of this year, I know that you've always been one of his faves too. So for us, it's really an honor to have you come on on the tape. We hope you'll come back and listen, write that book, man. Just have your own podcast about it. You could do a 30-minute episode every week for years on that stuff. I do have some good stories. I left a good one out. I just didn't want to drop that one right now. But thank you guys for having me. I'm grateful for what I get to do every day. I couldn't be happier. I love going to work every day. I really do. Well, it shows, man. And it's been our pleasure to work with you over the years. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.